Hi, this is Annie. And this is Bridget. And you're listening to Stuff I'll Never Told You. So once again, we got to start off with a trigger warning for this one, because today we are talking about another part of Me Too. And just in general, we're talking about complex PTSD. And in the age of Me Too, how to navigate that if that is a trigger for you. And then you're just being overwhelmed almost everywhere, but especially in social media and things like that with triggers. And another thing we have to say right at the top is we are not doctors or therapists at all. So hopefully this is informative, but it is no uh, replacement for seeing a professional. Yes, uh, we are not doctors. If you need to see a professional, you should try to do that. Um, we want to give you resources, advice, make sure that you know that you're not alone, but we cannot replace an actual professional. No. And a lot of you have written in about this and about sort of your struggles with it um, and how it makes you makes you feel not being able to engage. So yeah, we thought we'd talk about it. And I think when a lot of us think of PTSD, we think of veterans, war veterans, and there's a, an episode that you and Emily did, Bridget, around um, suicide and female veterans. Yeah, I actually would really encourage, um, even if you're not a veteran, I learned so much about how PTSD is different for women uh, on the research for that episode. So if that's something that you're interested in, definitely check it out. Yeah, for sure. Um, and a lot of us probably have a general idea of what post-traumatic stress disorder is, but um, what is complex PTSD or sometimes as it's known, CPTSD? But before we get into that, let us start with a quick rundown of PTSD. So 80 to 85% of folks who experience a traumatic event are estimated to work through it naturally by talking to people or by grieving. But it's when people don't talk about it, when they avoid it altogether, symptoms develop and hang around, leading to post-traumatic stress disorder. PTSD is a trauma or stress-related disorder resulting from a traumatic event. And the symptoms are divided into four clusters. One, re-experiencing. So nightmares, flashbacks, intense distressing feelings when you remember the event, upsetting thoughts or feelings about the event, or having a physical stress response when you are reminded of the event. And a note about flashbacks is um, visual is not the only type. There's also somatic, that's physically reliving a pain, or emotional, emotionally reliving something, like very vividly emotionally reliving something. Yeah, I feel like when we talk about things like this, emotionally reliving something, like people think that that is not an actual, like I, I can imagine someone saying, oh, that's not a real side effect, that's not a real symptom, but it can be very real. I've seen with my own eyes people who are in an experience that reminds them of something that was traumatic for them, kind of physically and emotionally relive it as if they are, you know, in it in that moment. And it's no joke. Like, I think it's something that is easy to discount, but it's really no joke. No, not at all. Um, the second cluster of symptoms is called avoidance. And these manifest in ways like avoiding anything that might remind you of the event. And that could be people, places, thoughts, conversations, topics, anything, all of the above. You might go out of your way to stay busy to keep yourself from remembering or dwelling. 
Third is hyperarousal, which is basically you're keyed up all the time, you're always on edge, you're experiencing difficulty sleeping, having outbursts or general irritability, not able to concentrate, being easily startled or jumpy. And the last is negative thoughts or beliefs, which is pretty self-explanatory, but includes things like not being able to remember the traumatic event clearly, loss of interest in things, feelings of isolation, difficulty feeling anything positive, and feeling like your life may suddenly end. So to be clear, most people don't actually exhibit all of these symptoms all at once, but they do have a few from each of these clusters. And untreated, PTSD can lead to a whole host of negative things, eating disorders, substance abuse or disorders, anxiety disorders, or major depression. Yeah, and it's pretty common too, affecting 8 million people of all ages in the United States. Women are two to three times more likely to develop it than men, 10 to 12% of women compared to 5 to 6% of men. And studies are ongoing as to why that is, and theories range from biological to psychological. Um, Other researchers point out the increased likelihood that women will be exposed to a traumatic event like sexual assault at a younger age. The earlier in life a trauma takes place, the the greater the impact. And um, the types of trauma associated with PTSD um, and that last maybe a longer period of time or are perpetrated by people close to them, that might be one of the reasons women are more likely to develop PTSD than men. Others say that because women are twice as likely to develop depression or anxiety disorders, it puts them more at risk to developing PTSD after a traumatic event. It's also possible men don't report as much or that they display symptoms differently. Women who experience abuse develop PTSD at a ratio of 74 to 3 compared to women who have not. Okay, so that is PTSD. Well, let's get into complex PTSD. Uh, The main difference between PTSD and CPTSD is that the causes of PTSD, like, say, a hurricane or a car accident, usually have a time-limited duration. CPTSD doesn't. A person dealing with CPTSD experiences chronic trauma lasting months or maybe years at a time and usually presents additional symptoms alongside the ones you see with traditional PTSD. So I had actually never heard of CPTSD, but it makes... So much sense. Like if you're someone who's dealt with something that was a longer term trauma and not just sort of a like a one time time limited experience, it makes sense that your symptoms and your reaction, both emotional, mentally, you know, physiologically, all of that, would be different. Um, Some of the particular circumstances that can lead to CPSD are usually things that involve captivity or a situation where one person has control over the other. These are things like being a prisoner of war, concentration camps forced non-consensual sex work or child exploitation, long-term child abuse, and that's physical, emotional, or sexual, or long-term domestic abuse, which also can be physical, emotional, or sexual. Yes, and um, CPTSD is also sometimes called disorders of extreme stress not otherwise specified, or DESNOS, or in the case of children and adolescents, developmental traumatic disorder. And kind of sort of maybe one of the reasons you haven't heard of it, Bridget, is that it's relatively new. The idea that we needed a new diagnosis other than PTSD to describe the experience of people dealing with chronic trauma was first proposed by Harvard's Dr. Judith Herman in 1997. It wasn't added as a separate diagnosis to the DSMV after DSMV-4 field tests found it shared 92% of the same diagnostic criteria with PTSD, It's mentioned in the DSMV, but doesn't have its own entry. Also, um, it does not address the cultural variance when it comes to PTSD, which was a problem pointed out in earlier editions. 
Nevertheless, a lot of professionals believe it might need to be treated a little differently, CPTSD, and believe that a misdiagnosis of PTSD or maybe even a personality disorder will result in an incomplete or incorrect treatment plan. Well, that makes so much sense because like you started the show talking about, people have issues with PTSD when when their traumas and their pain go undealt with and you're not talking to someone when you're not seeing a therapist. And so if you finally actually get to a point where you're talking to someone to go and have them say, oh, it's PTSD, not CPSD, like that would be very problematic to finally, you know, get to a place where you think I can talk to somebody and then have your issue be misdiagnosed in that way or or have them say, oh, you actually have this personality disorder or whatever. Um, it almost it would almost make the process of talking to someone seem worthless in a kind of way, I, I would imagine. Yeah, it's difficult in the first place to take that step and also not too many people specialize in it. So since it is sort of new, there aren't a lot of places you can go if you're looking online and you suspect that this is what you're dealing with. There aren't too many doctors or therapists you'll find that specialize in it. To be transparent, I was diagnosed with CPTSD last year. Um, and <laughs> it's funny, the week that I was diagnosed, it was that was when it was announced that like PTSD was going to be taken off insurance. And I remember like I just had to go home and just like sit and try to stay calm and then I had to come back and record podcast. Um but it, it's, it is a long, long battle. And for me, at least, you can think you've dealt with it and then something will happen and it just all comes back. <sighs> so I, my heart goes out to the listeners who have written in. Um, and I understand how hard, how hard it can be. And uh, yeah, just... <laughs> Just know that there are options out there for you, and we will be talking about some of those. But first, um, some of the symptoms that separate CPTSD from PTSD, these could include difficulty regulating your emotions, um, and this could present as suicidal thoughts, explosive anger, or a sadness that just stays with you. Um, Difficulty with certain aspects of consciousness, which could result in forgetting or reliving traumatic events, or feelings of disassociation from one's body, poor self-perception, strong feelings of guilt, shame, helplessness, stigma, feeling like you're different from everyone else, distorted perception when it comes to the perpetrator, attributing them with total power or becoming completely preoccupied with them, or revenge. Essentially, they just dominate your thoughts. Uh, It impacts your current relationships as well. You might isolate yourself because you feel distressful or you might constantly be looking out for a rescuer. And lastly, you might experience a loss of meaning or faith or whatever it is that a system in your life um, or perhaps you'll just feel hopeless or overwhelmed with despair or all of the above. So something that's really interesting to note is that from a biological standpoint, The cause is unknown, but studies in animals show that trauma impacts the parts of the brain related to memory and stress response. 
Researchers theorize that it's the body's way of trying to make sure the same thing doesn't happen again by reminding the survivor of the event and keeping them hypervigilant. Some researchers even think that it might be genetic and that increased risk factors include a family history of anxiety or depression or lifestyle factors like having a dangerous job. So some of these researchers even sort of think, you know, this is your body's way or your brain's way of saying, hey, be on alert because X, Y, Z traumatic, dangerous thing happened in the past. So never relax, never let your guard down, never feel okay, always be vigilant so it doesn't happen again. Yeah, it's kind of similar to the thing, um, what is it called, pay for tigers? Where back when our ancestors, if you saw a tiger, like your brain would recognize patterns where they weren't there. So you're always going to be afraid of maybe perhaps a rare event. But now we don't have tigers, but we're still making these patterns and seeing paper tigers. It's kind of like that, except the thing really did happen to you. And your brain is always just like never again amped up trying to keep it from happening. Um, And it can be tricky to properly diagnose CPTSD because survivors might avoid talking to professionals about the trauma, either because it's too painful or difficult. Um, On top of that, they might use unhealthy coping mechanisms like alcohol and or self-harming. And sometimes survivors are assumed to be of, quote, weak character and then blamed for the abuse they endured, which is Mm. horrible. That's awful. We really have to, I mean, that's, I think, a, a cultural change that we really have to get rid of this attitude that if something happens to you, you're weak, you're stupid, you're not strong, and that that like that is the cycle that people get stuck in where they don't talk about these things. Yeah. On one side of my family, um, there's definitely an attitude of uh, if you have to go to therapy, you're weak. And on the other side, it's the complete opposite. Like, go to therapy if you need it. But um, that that attitude, is, I think, is not healthy, not correct. Another thing worth mentioning is that people with CPTSD might seek treatment years after the traumatic experiences have ended because it does stick around. And I think the average is like 10 years later people wow. seek it. Yeah, yeah. So... It sticks around, and sometimes it just happens later, like it's a delayed response. So that's kind of an overview of what it is, but now we're going to talk about having CPTSD in the age of Me Too, but first we're going to stop for a quick break for a word from our sponsor. back. Thank you, sponsor. So while the conversation started by Me Too has been a good thing, it can be really triggering for CPTSD survivors and others too when the trauma behind it is something related like sexual assault. 94% of sexual assault victims experience PTSD symptoms in the first weeks after the assault. And most people do find ways to live with it, um, talk to people about it, but a minority do develop long-term PTSD. And if the sexual assault was ongoing, CPTSD. The news cycle is draining on all of us, but it can cause panic attacks and flashbacks for people who are dealing with PTSD or CPTSD. And to be confronted with it day after day, reminders of the trauma to see primarily women, but men as well, not be believed when they share their experience, that can be extremely damaging. 
Having your experience validated and believed is so important to treatment. So seeing that not happen for others, can it can really suck. It can really put you back. Treatment takes time. And it is like 10 years on average for CPTSD. And it is a daily struggle. And the constant exposure to news about other sexual assaults or things that are even tangentially related is a whole, uh, it's another thing you have to deal with. And people in your life may, may be talking about it, perhaps unfavorably, not knowing what you're dealing with. So it's, it's great that it's happening, but mental health should be a part of the conversation as well. And um, it can be exhausting to know your triggers and to avoid them when they're all over the place. And sometimes it's almost impossible to avoid them. Yeah, this is a weird time that we're in. I agree that Me Too is obviously a really important conversation and one that I, I think is vastly overdue. But I've, I've had that moment where, you know, maybe, we, maybe you want to get through a work day and not be assaulted by endless conversation about something traumatic that reminds you of something that you've experienced. You know, um, it can feel like it's something you can't turn off. And I've had those times where I've had to just log off because it's just too much. Um, I'll never forget when I was working at MSNBC, this was when that football player, uh, I think it was Ray Rice, was on, on a security video like, punching his, I think it was his girlfriend or his wife, like punching her to the point where she was unconscious and kind of carrying her lifeless body around. And this was the news story of the week. And I, I worked under this giant, massive TV screen that was literally playing this footage on a loop over and over and over and over again. I like, it, I mean, I, I think about it now, my, 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 you know, my fur gets up because I just remember how that felt. It, it felt like a kind of torture and there was no way to turn it off. There was no, unless I quit my job, there was, you know, no way to, to stop it. And that was a short-term thing. You know, a couple of days later, the news story changed and there was some new awful thing happening that was less traumatic for me. But imagine how hard it is to feel like that always, you know, then there's, there, feel like there's no escape. It's just constantly, constantly, constantly. And in this era of Me Too, I think that's how it can feel sometimes. Yeah, and I, it is an interesting thing when you work in a field like, like media, where you sort of have to deal with it, and that was a really hard thing for me to learn um, when I first started here, because you don't want to, at least I didn't want to talk to my bosses about it, but I, I was like, how, how else am I going to be able to, if I need to, have a reason to step away. So it can be it can be really difficult to navigate um, in the workplace too. Yeah, but again, that just goes back to this need to get away from stigma because listen, if your boss is interested in having Annie show up to be her best self and do the best job she can at work for the good of the company and for the good of Annie as a person, your boss should be in- and I'm I'm using boss like not I'm not talking about like a specific boss here. I mean, this, you know, the royal boss. a while ago. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure I didn't know this person. But yeah, I guess what I'm saying is that it should be in their best interest to make sure that you can do that, that you can show up as your best self every day. And we need to abandon this idea that when you walk through your workplace doors, all the other stuff that's on your mind, your family, what's in the news, the social climate, you know, Donald Trump is going to kill us all. 
you know, someone that you admired as a child turned out to be a rapist. You know, you were raped. Your sister was raped. Like all of this stuff that is that we carry around in our on our backs every day. It's ridiculous to expect that when you walk into your office, all of that gets put put away like at the door because it doesn't. And we need to acknowledge our full selves in the workplace. And sometimes that looks like saying, yeah, I just spent the entire day being triggered as f- because it, men are awful and this is the reality of being a woman, a working woman in the world. And sorry, my mental health is important. And if you want me to show up as my best self, you know, I need to step away or I need to go for a walk or I need to do whatever. I need to not be moderating comments with people being horrible. Like whatever it is, whatever that looks like for you, I would just love to see a workplace culture that understood what we all understand, right? Like what I'm saying right now isn't mind-blowing to anyone. If you've ever been broken up with and then had to go to work and smile because that was your job, we all we all have experienced this one way or another. So why are we pretending like it's not reality? Like why can't we just have workplaces that acknowledge what we all plainly see and experience as how reality is playing out? You do you know what I, do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It, there's definitely a stigma there, but on the flip side, at least in my case, I think my boss would have completely understood, but I could not have that conversation. I did not have the strength to have that conversation at the time. Um, so I didn't. Like my I my avoidance game is for the worst, <laughs> is on point. <laughs> I have gotten very good at that. Um, but I do think that we need to be able to have those conversations where we can in the workplace because, yeah, don't you want the best work environment and employees that you can have? So I'm curious how you have navigated that. Like as someone who is dealing with this, and we know it's something that you have to deal with all the time, like for people who are listening, how have you navigated that or how have you not navigated it? Like how does it play out for you? Are you doing things to navigate this or is it just something that's going to be always a, you know, a everyday struggle? It's it's an everyday struggle I think no matter what. Um I did figure out triggers and when I got this job, I it was really hard at first, but I I if I can anticipate something, then it's much easier. Like I can prepare myself for it and I hardly ever get really triggered or upset by stuff at work anymore. It's the things that surprise me that get me. Like I remember a year ago, because again, like you deal with it for a long time, right? And you think, well, I've I've learned and I know what's going to set me off and what's not. I went to go see Moana and within 30 minutes, I was like, I've got to leave. And I was in the bathroom crying over Moana. <laughs> what, what was it about Moana? I just didn't believe that there would be this young girl and this big dude alone on a boat together. Nothing would go wrong. There's something in my heart that's like, nope. Which is awful. And I've since seen Moana and I love it. <laughs> but I didn't know. Like, you can't prepare yourself for everything. Yeah. Right. It, I mean, I, I had, that's interesting that you say that because I remember a very similar experience. Um, this was a couple of years ago. I had gone to the movies to see um, this movie Southside with me. And it's if you've seen it, it's a really cute romantic movie about uh, Barack and Michelle Obama's first date when they had first met when they were in law school. And 
When I saw the movie, the trailer that preceded it was a trailer for Nate Parker's Birth of a Nation, which if you know, there was a whole controversy where his background of having allegedly raped a classmate in college and that classmate later committing suicide, that was, like, that that conversation dominated the premiere of that movie. And so for me, I could not think about Birth of a Nation or see anything about it without thinking about, you know, rape and sexual assault. And so watching this trailer really put me in a headspace of, you know, being sort of, like, I wouldn't say I was triggered, but it was top of mind. And so then seeing a movie that's about two people that I really admire going on a sweet date and sort of the the kind of one of the kind of running jokes of the movie, and I guess their relationship is that when Barack Obama first met Michelle, Michelle didn't want to date him and was like very clear. She was like, this is just some scrubby legal guy in my practice. He's younger than me. I don't like him. And so in the movie, she keeps saying, you know, I don't want to go out on a date with you. And the audience is very clearly meant to find this as charming and heartwarming. And it is charming and heartwarming. Like, I don't want to yeah. crap on that movie. But because I had just seen that trailer about Birth of a Nation and I was in my head, all I was thinking of is sexual assault, rape, sexual assault, rape. Within that framework, I could not experience what I what I logically understood on screen to be a charming love story. And of course they get married and they're the best and blah, blah, blah. But in that moment, I just thought, wow, I can't see this as sweet and romantic. I can only see it as threatening. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's things like that that I find the most the most challenging because you can't prepare yourself for them. Um, and I do have some some things that we'll talk about later, like if you find yourself in a situation where Moana has upset you, that you can do. <laughs> but we'll come back to that. And I have to say, you know, I I got my start teaching in, in the college setting. What you just said, I feel like makes the conversation around trigger warnings in places like college classrooms. No one in a classroom setting should have to leave crying if they can help it, right? Like if you can yeah. avoid that happening. And so when that conversation around, oh, trigger warnings, our kids are so coddled, blah, blah, blah. This is science. Like this is not people being coddled little snowflakes. This is medical research about how about people's mental and physiological responses to trauma to boil that down into look at these little snowflakes you know don't want to get upset because of whatever it's so backward and so wrong you know and it, it makes me sad that we are not providing an environment as you mentioned before in our workplaces that makes room for this but especially for young people who are just developing and in school you know, being told that their traumas are not real, that they're, that they're, you know, backed by science, physiological responses to traumatic stuff. Oh, they're, that's just a joke. You're a snowflake. Yeah, that, <laughs> that is not helpful at all. <laughs> not at all. Um, and there aren't specific studies yet looking into the impact of Me Too on survivors of sexual assault, but a study from 2006 found that when a survivor of a crime saw or read anything about their case, they were very likely to experience negative emotions. 66% reported sadness and 48% reported fear. Other studies suggest that just seeing traumatic stories like this um, will increase the likelihood of developing PTSD. In particular, there was a pretty big study after 
um, 9-11 on New Yorkers that saw witness 9-11. Another aspect that can be traumatizing is for trans people who have survived sexual assault and despite experiencing some of the highest rates of sexual assault have been kind of left out of the Me Too movement. Um, And this is seen by some trans folks as just another example of their experiences being ignored. And that in itself can be triggering. And it's the same for non-cis and people of color because it's mostly been, Me Too has mostly been about affluent white women. Well, that's just like what you said earlier, how important it is, like the first step to dealing with these issues are being validated, being heard. If you feel like your experience is just not going to be validated, not going to be heard, if you say it, someone's going to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, I hear you, trans woman, but did you hear about this affluent white woman who is not trans? You know, yeah. if, if, that's, if that's the message that you're getting, you, then you can't get that, you can't take that first important step. Right. And um, Betty Tang wrote about, about this over at Slate, about this whole Me Too and CPTSD and PTSD. And um, the article was called How to Find Shelter in the Storm of Me Too. And um, I want to read this quote. Many of my patients were re-traumatized by Donald Trump's election. Post-election, they experienced a renewed sense of dismissal that a self-professed pussy-grabbing man with multiple allegations of sexual assault stacked up against him could still be elevated to the most powerful leadership position in the world. The tacit message was, as a crime, sexual assault did not matter, and as individuals, survivors' lives did not matter. This point had been underscored time and time again. Within the space of a year, Me Too launched a global reckoning about the importance of speaking up about all forms of sexual violence. Silence-breaking women were named Times Magazine's Person of the Year for 2017. The shift has been momentous and emotionally grueling. As galvanizing as Me Too has been, it has also been extremely overwhelming. This is the double-edged sword of exposing trauma. As long-held sufferings pour forth, relief and horror both arise. For my most vulnerable patients, this has been destabilizing and confusing. When their social media feeds are flooded with detailed trauma histories, some questioned their decisions not to disclose theirs, while others wondered whether their assaults were, quote, as bad or worse. Yeah, I, I plus a million to what she said. I have this theory that, that that's why we see Me Too, is because we couldn't stop a self-proclaimed pussy grabber from ascending to the highest office in the land, right? We couldn't stop that. But we can stop Harvey Weinstein. We can stop, you know, your your boss, right? I think the anger at not being able to stop Trump and watching him ascend and be so awful to women and everyone and just be a nightmare, I think it triggered this anger that was inside of all of us who are marginalized, who are women, who are trans, who are people of color, and saying, we couldn't stop it then, but we can stop it now. And so maybe it's not Donald Trump, but, you know, I can speak up and, and you know, call out my abuser. And, and that, that is sort of a, a, a way of feeling empowered, even when, you know, you can't, like, we still have a, you know, admitted pussy grabber in the White House. Right. And, um... On the flip side of that, a lot of folks have expressed guilt for not being able to speak out about their own experiences, which just adds on to what you're already dealing with. 
And therapists say there are different levels of engagement in Me Too for survivors, um, maybe signal boosting, um, sharing a story in your own feed. But for some, disengagement is key for their mental health. If you see a post from a friend about Me Too, therapists recommend a comment like thinking of you or, or even a love or angry face emoji to show that you, you heard it um, or you saw it, but to not ask for details or to not try to be their, their therapist. Oh, my God. I, I mean, I've seen that play out on Facebook where somebody talks about something that happened to them, and you see somebody who I'm sure is well-meaning just making a real ass of themselves <laughs> in the comments, and you're thinking, show respect, validate it, you saw it, you heard it. But people don't want to be necessarily giving you the details of their, of their traumatic event, and they don't owe you that, right? Like, like no, yeah. Survive, like, I'm, when a survivor speaks out, I applaud them. But survivors don't owe you their story. It should not take all of us slitting our wrists and showing you our blood to get people to do something. Like, like you do not owe someone your Me Too story of survival. It's like what you're saying. It's a double-edged thing because it should not take waves and waves and waves of people telling you all the dirty details of, what, of the most traumatic thing that ever happened to them to get people to act and be like, yeah, this is a problem. And if people speak up, more power to them, I applaud you. But you don't owe anybody your story. And if speaking up doesn't feel right to you, we should still, as a society, be able to say, this is going on and it's not okay, even if you're not, you know, not giving someone every detail of something, tra- of the most traumatic thing that happened to you, you know? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I remember seeing a lot of that because one of the reasons I avoid social media is largely stuff like this. Um, but I remember when Me Too was first happening, a lot of tweets along the lines of, like, the onus shouldn't be on on women who have experienced this to to make changes, but that that's what it took, or at least that's what it took for this conversation to start happening. Um, another possible impact of Me Too for survivors is that more people are seeking treatment. Compared to the same time period in 2016, the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network received 23% more calls in 2017. Whether that's because of re-traumatization or an increased belief that their stories will be believed, we're not sure, but either way, it is happening. And something else that is important to point out is that a lot of these abusers might be scared or anxious about being found out as abusers and as creeps, and that might lead them to make threats to whoever they know that that you know w- would speak up about them. And so that's something that we need to stay vigilant for as well in the in the in the wake of Me Too. Yes, and um, assistant professor of clinical psychology and psychiatry, and clinical staff member at Penn Center's Treatment and Study of Anxiety or CTSA, Anu Aznani said when discussing this. I've had women in the middle of the Me Too movement who say, I can't own it like these women can. And I say, you don't need to. That's the great thing about this movement. You can own as much of it as you want. You don't need to share your trauma to get over your trauma, except with your therapist. And while Me Too can be traumatizing for a lot of people, for some it has been healing, and maybe it's been both at the same time. Yeah, I think we just have to allow space for that, that it can be both. It can be traumatizing, but it can also be healing. You know, we can, we can just hold that duality and that's okay. Mm-hmm. 
And this finally brings us to um, some, some treatment options, some things you can do if this is something you're dealing with. But first, we're going to take one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. After hearing all of this, as you might imagine, CPTSD can be debilitating, and current research is looking into more specialized ways to deal with it, but treatment options do exist. Uh, There are things you can do to help treat CPTSD. The first one, and most obvious, is going to a therapist if that's an option for you. I know personally this has been really hard for me, like finding the right person, again, with the whole insurance thing. It can be really discouraging, but if this is something that is available to you, is a possibility for you, don't give up. Yeah, it can be tough, but, you know, if it's something that you feel like you need to do for yourself, just tell yourself, you know, this is a process and that first step is making a call. Maybe that first step is going online and doing a Google search. Maybe that first step is talking to a friend who might be able to get you someone to talk to, you know, like take that first step, even though it might be hard. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and like I said at the top, since CPTSD is, is relatively new, there aren't too many people that specialize in it, and misdiagnosis is pretty common. It can be hard to get it covered by insurance here in the U.S., so unfortunately is not an option for everyone. But if it is for you, we definitely recommend it. If you do go to a professional, they might employ cognitive behavioral therapy or exposure therapy or acceptance therapy or this new one called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, which is really interesting. Um, One of the first goals of treatment is called stabilization, and this refers to the ability to separate the traumatic event from the present by using grounding techniques. And these can be pretty literal, like uh, walking around barefoot uh, to keep you in the safety of the here and now, just something kind of physical that that puts you in the moment. Other things that you'll hear a lot when it comes to treating both PTSD and CPTSD, um, it might sound simple, but it can be a challenge if you're a survivor of something traumatic. Things like learning how to manage stress, learning how to deal with flashbacks and knowing what triggers them, having a healthy strategy for emotion management and finding healthy long-term coping mechanisms and really figuring out a way to improve your sleep so that you don't just feel like garbage all the time. Yeah, and all of those if you if you look up online there are like walkthroughs if you're thinking, well, how do I improve my sleep? There are um <laughs> there are documents and resources available to you online that will tell you like step by step, try this. Um, Another important one, and this one was a big one for me, is finding a support group, reaching out to friends and family. Those are generally good steps for for mental health. Educating yourself and the people in your life about the symptoms and risk associated with CPTSD and PTSD is another recommendation. I would also add, you know, even if you're not someone who's struggling with PTSD or CPTSD, you know, I remember after um, Anthony Bourdain died, the kind of national conversation was, you know, talk to someone if you are having an issue, you know, don't suffer in silence. But I also, and I think that's important. And so I'm glad that you said that. But I also want to implore folks, reach out. You know, people, as we discussed today, it's hard to talk about this. One of the hallmarks of someone having PTSD is that they have not, it's hard to talk about and you don't, you put it off, you don't talk about it. And it might not be a a conversation about, the person who is suffering speaking up, 
we should all take it upon ourselves, whether we are struggling with issues or not, to talk to our, our people and be like, hey, are you okay? Do you need to talk? You know, and not just waiting for them to come to us, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, for sure. And at its core, what most professionals believe is key to treating CPTSD is to restore the survivor's sense of control and to empower them. And parts of that can include healing relationships or allowing yourself a period of mourning and um, finding ways to reconnect with your life. So if this is something that you're, you're struggling with or that you think you might be struggling with, um, there is hope. There is hope. It's not, it's not easy by any means, but there are things that you can do. And there are also a lot of resources for you. Um, the National Center for PTSD is a good place to start here in the U.S. They have an app. They have an app on your phone. <laughs> and um, the nonprofit out of the storm. There, there is a lot of, there's a lot of good stuff out there for, for how to deal with it. And um, I encourage anyone who thinks they're dealing with it or maybe not, maybe someone in their life is, to go and, to go and look it up. Because just having simple coping techniques or, um, yeah, stress management, um, they're super helpful, super helpful. Yeah, and, I mean, if you need help, get help and, and talk to your friends and take care of each other. And, Annie, I have to say, I'm, I'm grateful for you for really modeling what that can look like and being so transparent on the show about these issues because it really can help somebody. Yeah, I, I struggled with it, whether or not I was going to talk about it. But um, I know for me, hearing someone else talk about it and just seeing that they were having this life, that they were successful and happy and that they had if, like not overcome it completely, but they had found ways to deal with it and still mm. be happy and fulfilled. And that was so valuable to me. So if it was valuable to anyone else, I... I hope. I hope so. Totally. Because, I mean, you, yeah, you are a successful, dynamic, happy person. And that, you know, having these challenges does not mean that you're not those things. You can, you can be all of those things at once. And yeah, I'm, I'm happy that folks are modeling that because it is important. Yeah. And, and one thing, one disclaimer I would like to include, because I did do this as well for a while, is I would see people who I thought were, quote, dealing with it better than me. But you don't know what, what's going on outside of when you're seeing them, right? And that's not helpful to you. They, it's a struggle, and some people are better. Are better. They, they just, you don't know what they're dealing with outside. You don't see all of them. So don't think like you aren't enough or you're, you're not as strong as this person because people deal with things in different ways. People present things in different ways. So it just is different for different people and uh, I would put money on someone that you think is dealing better with it than you is just dealing with it differently or maybe more in private or maybe not at all <laughs> yeah that's I mean I just finished watching Sharp Objects no spoilers but there's a great line where um, someone tells the main character oh I, I'm so happy that you tackled your demons and she says my demons are not remotely tackled merely concussed <laughs> <laughs> Love it, love it. 
So that brings us to the end of this episode and to listener mail. Alex wrote, I love hearing your feminist voices every week, even with laryngitis. I wanted to thank you for doing an episode on name changes in marriage. This episode really resonated with me because I took my husband's name when I got married and changed it back a year later. I actually wrote an article about it that was published on ExoJane. During my engagement, I debated whether to change my name and ended up deciding to change it. I immediately questioned my decision, but I decided to stick with my new name for a while in case it grew on me. Spoiler, it didn't. I actually like my husband's last name and it sounded nice with my first name, but I just couldn't get over losing such a big part of my identity. I love my birth name. And like you talked about on the podcast, my name is intertwined with so many aspects of my life. Plus, I'm a huge feminist and taking my husband's name doesn't align with my values. I'm actually embarrassed that I succumbed to society's pressure to take my husband's name in the first place. About a year into my marriage, I changed my name back. It was a huge hassle, but it was so worth it. After using a different last name for a year, reading or hearing my full birth name again is the best feeling. I did get a lot of interesting reactions, though. My husband was very supportive, and so were a lot of my family and friends. But a lot of people, strangers, friends, and acquaintances alike, were confused, shocked, or even outraged. Some of my husband's friends even called him to ask if he was mad or to say that they disagreed with what he had done, which was disappointing on so many levels. I had to go to court to change my name back, and even the judge assumed I was getting divorced. I don't regret it at all, though. I'm telling you, we got so much email about this, and just every email was unique, and um, I'm loving it. Uh, That is interesting to me that people called her husband and were like... (laughs) I don't agree with what your wife is doing. Just so you know, I don't agree with what's happening in your marriage. Just so you're aware. (laughs) Can you imagine? Like, what a busybody. (laughs) What a thing to say. (laughs) Uh. Hallie wrote, The episode on name changes after marriage really hit home for me because it was a major point of contention for me and my now wife throughout our engagement, which lasted two full years because we were waiting for it to be legal to get married in Texas. From a pretty early age, middle school maybe, before I even had an inkling I was queer, I was pretty set on not changing my name for a spouse. It was all hypothetical, but I was a pretty contrary kid, even before I knew to call myself a feminist. Once we were engaged, I had an even stronger desire that neither of us should change our name because we felt that it was super heteronormative. And I've already felt pretty overwhelmed by the sheer heteronormity of the entire wedding industry. Turns out my wife was equally set on sharing a family name. It was important to her that we establish an identity as a family. While I was focusing on the fact that marriage wouldn't erase us as individuals, there's a whole thing about codependent lesbians that I was pushing back on too, I think. She didn't want to hyphenate and saddle future kids with a hyphen, a reasonable position if you think about what those kids would face if they grow up and get married and face the same debate. Do we just have infinitely compounding hyphens? Coming back to that thought later. Anyway, the reasonable solution was obviously that she would take my last name. She was happy to do so, and I was really the one uncomfortable with it which I think is probably a different dynamic than straight couples face. I also have some professional credit built up with my family name, which is more unusual than my wife's maiden name. And yeah, totally icky that we call it that. My parents and grandparents have lived and done business in our smallish town for a long time. So there are practical reasons too. I just really, really didn't want to do it. And we put off the decision until literally the week before our wedding. We ultimately decided that she would take my last name and we both take her maiden name as our middle name. Problem solved. Except... We found out in the aftermath of of the wedding that either partner can change their last name on the basis of a marriage certificate, 
and you can drop your middle name in favor of your maiden name with no extra paperwork. But for me to change my middle name only will require a court order and a public notice in a newspaper, both of which cost money. So I still haven't legally changed my middle name. Also, even for my wife to change her middle name in the, quote, usual way was tons of paperwork to a bunch of different places. It's not like there's some central office you write to and they just tell everyone. The DMV doesn't talk to the Social Security Administration and doesn't talk to the post office, doesn't talk to the State Department, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a draconian nightmare. I was also pondering what it means that you can have so much family identity wrapped up in keeping your name, when by virtue of doing so, you're potentially keeping your own kids from having that same sense of family identity if they don't share a last name with one or both of their parents. How do we reconcile that? Our reason for preserving the thing is also literally destroying at the same time. Sure, there's hyphenation, but that's just pushing the buck down the road one generation. What if two hyphenated kids marry each other? Standardized forms don't have that many boxes. I have no idea what the answer is. Obviously, in the past, we've just solved it by only caring about patrilineage. So it's not like this is a new issue or by itself a reason to change your name. But it's something I was thinking about during the episode. Maybe we just need to go super old school with naming conventions and tack on a new son, daughter, child of surname with every generation. Um, Hallie, thank you for this letter. First of all, it's, it's, I'm happy that folks who are not in heterosexual pairings are writing in to tell us what the experience is like for them because I swear, as you said, Annie, it's like a different, interesting story situation every time. But also, I don't think I really knew how, because I'm not married, I don't think I really knew how complicated it can be logistically to change your name. Oh, yeah. I've been shocked at how expensive and how just time-consuming. And somebody wrote in and said, yeah, you had to announce in the paper if you changed... Like, I think it was if the husband took the last... If the husband changed his name, you had to announce it in the paper or something. That's so old. That's like the most... I mean, people don't really get the paper anymore, right? Like, that's such an old school thing. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's... I mean, that's another thing, true. I mean, it's like like old school with an old school. You You know what I'm saying? Yes. Well, yeah, thanks to both of them for writing in. We'll we'll be hearing a lot more from listeners because we've gotten so much mail about it um, in future episodes as listener mail. We just got to do a full episode. We really should. I, I mean, us reading them the whole time would be boring, but we, we have to figure something out. Yeah, because it's been just so rewarding and stunning, honestly. <laughs> How many letters and uh, other communications we've gotten about this. But in the meantime, if you would like to write to us yourself, you can. Our email is momstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us on social media on Twitter at momstuffpodcast and on Instagram at stuffmomnevertoldyou. And thanks as always to our producer, Dylan Fagan. Mm-hmm.